Chapter 6 We last left off with Rosemary and Guy on their way to the Castavets for dinner. Me and Roman are both extremely enthusiastic at their arrival. The book describes their overly creative design choices. There's nothing about the Castavets that doesn't scream eccentric. The room was oddly furnished. At the fireplace end, there was a settee and a lamp table and a few chairs, and at the opposite end, an office-like clutter of file cabinets, bridge tables piled with newspapers, overfilled bookshelves, and a typewriter on a metal stand. Between the two ends of the room was a twenty-foot field of brown wall-to-wall carpet, deep and new-looking, marked with the trail of a vacuum cleaner. In the center of it, entirely alone, a small round table stood holding Life and Look and Scientific American. They're lively folks with oddly alluring charm. It's also in their mannerisms, which do get translated into the films and well-exaggerated by their respective actors, especially Ruth Gordon as Minnie. They are well-off and well-traveled based on all the interesting items they have displayed all over their home. Roman is 79 and from NYC, but according to him, he's been everywhere, literally. He also has a habit of repeating phrases like, You name a place and I've been there. He says he's been in nearly every business, listing wool, sugar, toys, machine parts, marine insurance, and oil. I thought of, like, Tim Curry for Roman because I think it's just because of the way he dresses and talks. That's just the first person who can probably do Roman justice. Well, he has great charisma. Maybe a really funny casting choice would be Al Pacino. (laughs) I don't know why. (laughs) I feel like there are a lot of actors who probably could play Minnie because I think there are a few actors who could put their all into this role like of course I'm biased but Glenn Close I'm like so stuck on Kathy Bates right now just because she's she's always playing like southern or midwestern characters you know she'd do the the midwestern bray yeah uh Kathy Bates hit us up especially just because like I'm thinking of actors that I love from horror and Misery is one of my absolute favorite films, and Kathy Bates is just a revelation. I love watching her do anything. At the dinner table, they discussed the newspaper strike and the Pope's visit. It will end on October 3rd, Mr. Castavet said. The day before the Pope gets here. No Pope ever visits a city where the newspapers are on strike. I heard on TV that he's going to postpone and wait till it's over, Mrs. Castavet said. Guy smiled. Well, he said, that's showbiz. Mr. and Mrs. Castavet laughed and Guy along with them. Rosemary smiled and cut her steak. Still laughing, Mr. Castavet said, it is, you know, that's just what it is, showbiz. The costumes, the rituals, every religion, not only Catholicism, pageants for the ignorant. Mrs. Castavet said, I think we're offending Rosemary. No, no, not at all, 
Rosemary said. You aren't religious, my dear, are you? Mr. Castavet asked. I was brought up to be, Rosemary said, but now I'm an agnostic. I wasn't offended, really, I wasn't. And you, Guy? Mrs. Castavet asked. Are you an agnostic, too? I guess so, Guy said. I don't see how anyone can be anything else. I mean, there's no absolute proof one way or the other, is there? No, there isn't, Mr. Castavet said. Mrs. Castavet, studying Rosemary, said, You looked uncomfortable before, when we were laughing at Guy's little joke about the Pope. Well, he is the Pope, Rosemary said. I guess I've been conditioned to have respect for him, and I still do, even if I don't think he's holy anymore. If you don't think he's holy, Mr. Castavet said, you should have no respect for him at all, because he's going around deceiving people and pretending he is holy. When I think what they spend on robes and jewels, Mrs. Castavet said, this moment where it's obvious that Rosemary obviously still has these ingrained beliefs about the Pope and Catholicism because of the way she was raised. And it's this like very like constant underlying thing and through line that you get as it goes on. How I think, I think for her, faith is something that's really important even if she isn't stuck in Catholicism or any one organized religion. You know, this idea that she's agnostic now, she still is holding on to some sort of belief, some sort of faith, because it comforts her. Uh, and that's something that I think you will see as the book progresses. And I think it kind of does show that she doesn't have a lot of strong opinions, the same way that Guy seems to hold. Yeah, and like... Guy obviously wasn't raised religious one way or another. He was clearly raised fairly secular. So they have very, very different beliefs. One thing that obviously will become more obvious as it goes on is that it's very ironic for the Castavets to joke about the pageantry of Catholicism, which, like, of course... Catholicism is very flamboyant, I suppose. And it's like the two most flamboyant people making fun of the flamboyance of Catholicism is so funny. I mean, to some extent, don't all religions hold some level of quote unquote pageantry? At least in like the way that there are certain rituals, you have certain prayers, certain garments you wear for certain events. I guess kind of just compared to, like, the other ones, Catholicism is probably the most, um, flashy. Yeah. But it's even weirder when it comes to, from, like, Mr. Castavet. Yeah, when it's them is that, like, they're clearly making a criticism about Catholicism and, and all organized religion doing this when, well, you know, it'll become pretty obvious as we continue the book why that's so ironic. Yeah, but I mean, even now when you see that their actual household, they seem to have a lot of stuff in general. Like they they own all these like large, fancy furniture, these odd, these oddities, and yeah. this guy who comes from a very wealthy family and was in a bunch of different businesses that are, especially if you're in toys, like toys for the very fact are very much very fun, flashy material possessions. I feel like Roman almost thinks it doesn't apply to him because like everything he has or knows and stuff it's because he's worldly like quote-unquote worldly it's very you know um 
show-offy, I guess. And I think it's even funnier that guy is agreeing with them. For a, a guy, for, I guess, literally, a guy who wants to be rich, famous, and flashy. Yeah, but you know, the thing with Guy is that to an extent, he is also being manipulated by them. Because Roman knows what to say. He knows to to say that like his father was a theater producer. He knows that's going to get, that's going to pique Guy's interest. Everything the cast of Etz say to Guy and Rosemary is extremely pointed in a way that they hope will mask any red flags that might pop up with them. Especially for Guy, who is very unobservant and has a one-track of mind. Because we get the book from Rosemary's point of view, she does notice things that make her uncomfortable, but she is also living in a time where she's been taught not to complain or make a fuss. And not even just the time, but also growing up Catholic, which I think is another interesting contrast with Guy, is that with Rosemary, we get her second-guessing herself all the time, and very rarely speaking up about it, and hoping just quietly that, you know, Minnie will go away, or people will just leave her alone. At this point, Roman starts buttering Guy up about his acting and tells him his father was a theatrical producer, initiating Guy's further interest. You have a most interesting inner quality, Guy. It appears in your television work, too, and it should carry you very far indeed. Provided, of course, that you get those initial breaks upon which even the greatest actors are to some degree dependent. After dinner... Rosemary helps Minnie with the washing up and Minnie asks questions about her family. She learns that Rosemary has three brothers and two sisters and that she's the youngest. The majority of her siblings are married with children and she has many nieces and nephews. Well, that's a good sign for you, Mrs. Castavet said. If your sisters have lots of children, chances are you will too. Things like that go in families. Oh, we're fertile, all right, Rosemary said. My brother Eddie has eight already and he's only 26. Rosemary tells Minnie that she isn't on good terms with her family, apart from one brother, because Guy's in Catholic and they didn't have a church wedding. Mrs. Castavet said, Isn't it something the white people fuss about religion? Well, it's their loss, not yours. Don't you let it bother you any. That's more easily said than done, Rosemary said. This is kind of where Minnie kind of like uh, kicks in. Yeah, Minnie's asking her very pointed questions about the fertility of her family. <laughs> and it's like, okay, okay. Which would be weird if it was, I guess, Roman. But because Minnie is one of them, Owen Elf, but two, she kind of already built that kind of relationship with Rosemary ahead of time. And there's kind of that level of bonding as, oh, it's just as women and what, I guess, a woman would or should want. And, and, and Minnie is kind of, I guess, like her level of manipulation is probably much more... Like, I know she's very forward about things, She's and she's very nosy. But it's subtle, yeah. because it, it's in a way where, like, both Roman and Minnie have these roles with regards to the manipulation, and actually something that I'm noticing just right now is that their approach to what they're doing with each of them is very typically gendered, I think, that Minnie is asking about family and children and the home and stuff. You know, this is the, like, women's talk, right? Whereas Roman is telling guy stories about 
travel, theater, work. That's like, you know, men's talk. And because we're looking at the 60s, those roles are a lot more rigid. So we're looking at, despite them being manipulative, it's done in a way that it makes sense. You know, Rosemary is, of course, expecting probably an older woman to ask about family. That makes sense. That's not a weird thing. Yeah, and I guess, um, plus Rosemary is, is a housewife, so she doesn't really get as much time to really, with other people besides her husband who comes home at the end of the, his work shift. And there was that whole joke about how housewives are oftentimes really lonely and need someone to talk to because the only thing occupying them is just cleaning and taking care of their children. But having another adult to talk to is something they're oftentimes pining for. Yeah, that there's this isolation. Also, I think another thing with Rosemary's Baby that makes the isolation concept in this even more stark is that she's in New York City. New York City is just like a city of strangers. Wait, I think that's literally a lyric <laughs> from Company. <laughs> the city of strangers. Yeah, some co- yeah, sorry. Yeah, literally. If we're looking at the time, let me talk about Stephen Sondheim and the musical Company. The song Another Hundred People, which is basically just about people coming and going constantly in New York, and people rarely are there for more than one day because a lot of people will come into the city for work. Those who do stay keep missing each other and not getting a chance to meet. That's fun. I love to reference my buddy Sondheim. And this is actually like, it's it's about the same time because company premiered in the 70s. It's a musical about marriage and marriage in New York and loneliness. Wow. Steven Sondheim and Ira Levin have done so much for the world. But yeah, this is the thing about New York is that obviously there are communities in New York, but this is something that I think comes up in any media about New York is that it's just like a lonely city of a bunch of strangers. And especially because, you know, Rosemary's sitting alone in an apartment all day in New York. It's just like a lot of people in a lot of big buildings. And there's a bit of like a hollowness because everyone is just constantly passing each other and very rarely talking to each other. And if they are talking to each other, it's very empty. At home, they gossip about the Castavets, making fun of the things they have in their home and Minnie's cooking. Guy said they should be quiet, remarking that the walls have ears. As they get ready for bed, Guy talks about going back over to to Roman's theater story sometime, and Rosemary decides she won't be going along. She changes the subject to the nature of the Castavet's home. Why did they take down the pictures? She said. What do you mean? They're pictures. They took them down, in the living room and in the hallway leading back to the bathroom. There are hooks on the wall in clean places, and the one picture that is there over the mantel doesn't fit. There are two inches of clean at both sides of it. And why do they have all those files and things in the living room? She asked. He puts out a newsletter for stamp collectors all over the world. That's why they get so much foreign mail. Yes, but why in the living room? Rosemary said. They have three or four other rooms, all with the doors closed. Why doesn't he use one of those? So my thoughts are I also think it's weird that they just have a bunch of boxes in the living room. Why would they do that? Suspect. Could it be... Mrs. Gardenia's body parts? Yeah, I wonder what they um, took off the walls. What if they were taking their um, picture, like, they took all their pictures of um, 
their they took all their erotic art down <laughs> yeah and uh, their i guess their little um sex um pictures and the guy who was taking the pictures like oh we can't have these up here all these like old people yeah they took all the tasteful nudes of mini down <laughs> It is so weird to just, like, have a bunch of files in the living room and having all the doors closed. It's like, just put your files in another room. You are entertaining people. Jesus. Yeah, as someone who enjoys also throwing all of the things that I don't need to be seeing into a different room and closing it, that would make so much more sense. Earlier you mentioned how Guy lacks awareness. Yeah. Yet, it's kind of interesting how... Because Rosemary herself is someone who doesn't very quiet and not very, I guess, isn't much to complain or say anything. But she doesn't notice, notice a lot of things because, I guess, also she did go into philosophy. She's often someone who seems to question a lot of things, even if she doesn't say it out loud. Well, Guy just seems to take in information and not really try to look at it critically. Yeah, everything just, like, goes over his head. Everything jumps out at rosemary more and when you grow up in a culture where you're not meant to question you end up becoming a lot more observational and that's why it makes sense that rosemary ends up having you know a lot of questions and noticing a lot of things yeah well guy has always been i guess the center of attention so he doesn't really take time to look around or check his surroundings. Yeah, he has no reason to question anything. Like, he's he's a good-looking actor. All he needs to do is show up for auditions and hope he gets a part. And if he doesn't, he's like, why, why, why am I not getting that part? Look at me. I'm so beautiful and tanned. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course, yeah, they're in yeah. Yeah, Guy only ever picks up what benefits him and... Everything else is just kind of uh, sitting there, untouched. A little while later, Rosemary realizes with disappointment she's about to get her period. As Rosemary contemplates her dismay over not being pregnant, it becomes evident just how controlling Guy can be. Indulgently, he studied the calendar and avoided the dangerous days. And she said, No, it's safe today, darling. I'm sure it is. And again this month, he had won and she had lost in this undignified contest which he didn't even know they were engaged. Lindy Bancroft mentions how a part of abusive relationships is oftentimes the way to keep the victims like locked into the relationship. They'll sabotage birth control. While with Guy, it's kind of more so the opposite because he feels as though he's going to lose control if he does have, have a child. Because then he'll kind of be locked into having to be a quote-unquote parent and having to actually take things seriously and maybe forego his acting uh, career because he sees it as somehow a loss to him. Right. I also think how Rosemary feels that they're in this contest, and again, that guy doesn't know that they're in this contest, that there is this lack of communication in the relationship. But I think Rosemary is very much aware that guy is never going to be ready to have a child. But, you know, she she doesn't want to believe that. She's just hoping yeah, because it, it almost seems as though, like, Guy is, like, almost just wasting away her youth while he tries to pursue his acting career. And it's also one of the reasons to why I think Guy is with Rosemary, because she's much younger and he's already in his, like, 30s. By the time he may have, I guess, gotten his big career break, 
she may be much older and uh, how like women who were over a certain age were considered to be having a what's called a geriatric pregnancy. It's still called that because it's like a technical term that a woman over 35 getting pregnant is called a geriatric pregnancy. Guys at an age where you would think, hey, maybe he's ready to settle down, but he's still like sort of treating it as just getting started. And like plenty of people obviously get started in acting after they turn 30. But it's strange, I think, for him. And that's sort of the thing is that he's probably been trying to act for a long time. And it's only recently that he's gotten a couple breaks and that it's been so long of him going out for auditions, trying to get any roles, trying to get really good roles, that it kind of like makes sense that he's like not ready to settle down yet. You know, he hasn't gotten his big break yet. And he's at the age where he kind of like he needs it now this is the thing with rosemary and guy even though like obviously guy becomes just like a horrible abusive asshole we were talking before i think in the last episode how he has the potential to be a good person but the problem is that they want different things and i mean this is like very simple but they want different things and the communication is so off it's kind of just this like perfect storm If Guy had not been presented this opportunity that he is presented with, you know, they probably, honestly, divorced within a year. (laughs) Like, yeah, I get it, because I feel like Rosemary would just feel like she's being strung along, while Guy is going to still be pining after that dream. Yeah, they're not a couple that are supposed to be together to begin with. Chapter 7 Early the next day, Guy heads out to the Castafets to hear more of Roman's theater stories, and Minnie invites herself over, along with her friend, Laura Louise McBurney. Minnie comments that Rosemary looks worn, and she replies that she's on the first day of her period. And you're up and around? Laura Louise asked, sitting. On my first days, I experienced such pain that I couldn't move or eat or anything. Dan had to give me gin through a straw to kill the pain, and we were 100% temperance at the time, with that one exception. Girls today take things more in their stride than we did, Mrs. Castavet said, sitting too. They're healthier than we were, thanks to vitamins and medical care. So, um, in spite of the average available calories being 3,400 in 1909, for those living close to or around a farm, before the 1930s, there wasn't much of any focus on micronutrients and the benefits of vitamins, as cited in the paper, United States Dietary Trends Since 1800s, lack of association between saturated fatty acid consumption and non-communicable diseases. I don't know. I just think it's ironic. It's Minnie being like, people are healthier thanks to vitamins. And it's like, you got to stop pushing that tannis root then, bro. Okay, so you're saying weed is unhealthy? Weed is healthy. It's just re- it's just funny because, you know, she's like, there's nothing else. Just tannis. Actually, you know what's funny? is when we realize that tannis root is related to weed and, like, how tannis is supposed to be, like, so, like, strong and, like, pungent. She, like, feels sick, right? But weed is actually really helpful. If you smoke it, it's quite good for nausea. So, like, it's funny thinking about that they're, like, cousin plants. I know, like, pregnant women 
every once in a while will will smoke weed because it helps with morning sickness. I mean, yeah, but they aren't smoking it here. They're just smelling the strong smells. Yeah, I know. I'm like, you know what? Gosh, maybe if <laughs> if Rosemary just started smoking that tannis root, maybe like everything that happens in the second part of the book would be a lot different. But of course, you know, we'll get to that later. Um, speaking of tannis root, of course. Minnie gifts Terry's silver filigree ball charm filled with tannis root to Rosemary, making her feel uneasy over the good luck charm that clearly didn't produce good luck for Terry. Laura Louise said, A friend of ours made the chain entirely by hand. He's a retired dentist, and his hobby is making jewelry out of silver and gold. You'll meet him at Minnie and Roman's on, on some night soon, I'm sure, because they entertain so much. You'll probably meet all their friends. All our friends. The elder women work on crocheting and needlework while making conversation with Rosemary. Rosemary's surprised by how nice a time she actually has, hearing about Minnie's childhood and learning some sewing tricks from Laura Louise. Minnie and Laura Louise make their leaf when Guy returns home at 11. He is quiet and oddly self-contained. Rosemary tells Guy about Minnie giving her Terry's necklace, remarking that the police must have given it back. Rosemary lifted the chain off over her head and held the chain and the charm on her palm, jiggling them and looking at them. Aren't you going to wear it? Guy asked. It smells, she said. Guy smelled and shrugged. It's not bad, he said. Rosemary went into the bedroom and opened a drawer in the vanity where she had a tin Louis sherry box full of odds and ends. Tannis, anybody? She asked herself in the mirror and put the charm in the box, closed it, and closed the drawer. Guy in the doorway said, If you took it, you ought to wear it. What is it about Guy that the smell isn't so bad to him? It's because he smoked weed before. I mean, aren't actors just doing drugs? I 100% believe that Rosemary has smoked weed, though. Like, when she, like, just moved to the city and she was, like, living with a bunch... So you're saying Hutch gave her weed? No, I'm not saying Hutch gave her weed. I'm saying one of the other girls gave her weed that she was living with. I mean, of course she's done weed. There's no way she hasn't. I mean, you can still find the smell of weed sometimes certain stents disgusting yeah it's just interesting that it's so incredibly pungent to rosemary and guys just like eh, not bad it's nothing okay bro of course it's only just part of the story and like rosemary's supposed to be hesitant while guys like all in yeah just gotta wonder what's up with that yeah and i find it interesting how um this tannis root is like so important to many and how she was like stuff it everywhere i feel as though she's the kind of person that probably has like a bit of tannis root in a jewelry box Mm -hmm. that night rosemary awoke and found guy sitting beside her smoking in the dark she asked him what was the matter nothing he said little insomnia that's all she touched his arm and told him not to worry about what about anything all right he said i won't you're the greatest she said you know you are And it's all going to come out right. You're going to have to learn karate to get rid of the photographers. He smiled in the glow of his cigarette. Any day now, she said. Something big. Something worthy of you. I know, he said. Go to sleep, honey. Okay. Watch the cigarette. I will. Wake me if you can't sleep. Sure. I love you. I love you, Ro. A couple days later, Guy brings home tickets for the Fantastics that were gifted to him by his vocal coach, Dominic. As Guy has already seen it, he says Rosemary should go with Hutch so he can rehearse a scene. Hutch also has already seen it. So Rosemary went with Joan Jellicoe, who confided during dinner at the Bijou that she and Dick were separating, no longer having anything in common except their address. 
The news upset Rosemary. For days, Guy had been distant and preoccupied, wrapped in something he would neither put aside nor share. Had Joan and Dick's estrangement begun in the same way? At home, Guy is more vivacious and bare, and he tells Rosemary rehearsing his scene had gone well. The scent from the tannis root had become overwhelming, so Rosemary wraps the charm in a piece of aluminum foil and says, if the smell doesn't go away, she'll throw out the necklace and tell Minnie she lost it. That night, Rosemary can hear a party coming through the wall at the Castapits. She heard the same flat, unmusical singing she had heard the last time, almost like religious chanting, and the same flute or clarinet weaving in and around and underneath it. Guy continues to be excited and motivated throughout the weekend, seemingly on edge waiting for a phone call, picking it up every time it rings. Finally, the call it appears he had been waiting for comes. Oh God, no! The poor guy! Rosemary realizes that this phone call is the something big for Guy's career. When he hangs up, Rosemary asks what the phone call was about. Donald Baumgart, he said. He's gone blind. He woke up yesterday and he can't see. Tried to hang himself this morning. He's in Bellevue now, under sedation. They looked painfully at each other. I've got the part, Guy said. It's a hell of a way to get it. Guy says he needs to get out for a walk to process everything. Rosemary naturally feels terrible for Donald Baumgart, but is struck by how lucky she and Guy are, and begins to get excited thinking about when rehearsals would start and where the play might travel to. She goes to the window and waits for Guy so she can watch him leave the building and head out on his walk. She waited and watched, but he didn't come out. He must have used the 55th Street door. Over the next few days, Rosemary notices how dour and troubled Guy is, which she doesn't understand, assuming he'd be happy with getting this play. His eyes followed her around the apartment, tensely, as if she were dangerous. I feel like this is the moment where we see Rosemary start feeling somewhat scared of Guy. She's really starting to feel suspicious and uncomfortable with Guy's behavior. After hanging out with the Castavets, it's really odd how Guy's entire demeanor changes because he's never someone who seems as though he would kick it with some old folks, have interest in other people beyond a very superficial, what can I gain from this? Right. But it makes sense in a way, like I think it makes sense to Rosemary because Roman has theater stories. And Rosemary, I think she understands Guy enough that, like, oh, he'll do whatever for any type of connection. And the big thing here, obviously, is that he just gets this big part. Of course, the you know, the way he gets it is because the previous actor attempted suicide. And something about Guy's character tells me that... Normally, this would not phase him quite as much. So it's the fact that he's, the quote here is that he's dour and troubled, alludes to there possibly being more to how he feels about getting this part. That, I think, is what Rosemary is sort of catching on to. There's something underneath that is worrisome. One afternoon, Rosemary comes home to an apartment full of the roses. And Guy says he's been a living turd. It's finally time. Let's have a baby, okay? Let's have three, one at a time. Do you mean it? She asked. Sure, I mean it, he said. I even figured out the right time to start. Next Monday and Tuesday. Red circles on the calendar, please. You really mean it, Guy? She asked, tears in her eyes. No, I'm kidding, he said. Sure, I mean it. Well, now that Guy is saying that he wants to have a baby, it's like, okay, my dude, what prompted that? 
is very much out of the blue considering how there was a growing distance between them. I think here, because we've made the point about Guy that he would never be ready to start a family until he has got his big break and he's a famous actor and everything. All he's done is get a big role in a play. They have not started rehearsals yet. He doesn't know if the play is going to do well. So, like, what is making him so confident that this is the time? Yeah, it's not very calculated like the way Guy is. It's suspicious. But this is what Rosemary wants. She wants it so badly that she's willing to overlook the possibility that something else is going on. Chapter 8. On Monday the 4th of October, Pope Paul comes to visit New York City. Rosemary is in a good mood today. She did some shopping around the city and is now home watching the coverage of the visit while she prepares dinner for what Guy has dubbed Baby Night. While she's setting the table, she gets a call from her sister Margaret, who she isn't close with, but calls because she says she's had a feeling that something bad happened to Rosemary. Rosemary assures Margaret that she's fine, and they catch up a little. She finds out Margaret has another baby on the way, and she wants to tell her she'll be pregnant soon too, but doesn't. Margaret doesn't understand why Rosemary only watched the Pope's visit on television instead of going to see him live when several members of their family planned to fly to NYC just to see him in person. It was such a strong feeling, Margaret said. From the minute I woke up, I'm so used to taking care of you little brats. Give my love to everyone, will you? I will. Rosemary, yes, I still have the feeling. Stay home tonight, will you? When Guy gets home, he realizes he forgot to pick up dessert, but Rosemary says it's okay. They settle in for dinner, happening on Ella Fitzgerald sings the Cole Porter songbook. It's lucky Guy forgot dessert, however, because Minnie shows up with two cups of chocolate mousse, or as Minnie calls it, mouse. Sweet of her, really, Rosemary said. We shouldn't make fun of her. You're right, Guy said. You're right. The mousse is good, but Rosemary takes a chalkiness in it. Come on, Guy said. The old bat slaved all day over a hot stove. Eat it. But I don't like it, Rosemary said. It's delicious. You can have mine, Guy scowled. All right, don't eat it, he said. You don't wear the charm she gave you. You might as well not eat her dessert, too. Confused, Rosemary said. What does one thing have to do with the other? They're both examples of, well, unkindness, that's all, Guy said. Two minutes ago, you said we should stop making fun of her. That's a form of making fun, too, accepting something and then not using it. Oh, Rosemary picked up her spoon. It's going to turn into a big scene. She took a full spoonful of the mousse and thrust it into her mouth. Guy gets annoyed and tells her not to eat it if she doesn't like it. But Rosemary lies, saying it's delicious. There's no chalky undertaste, and she tells Guy to turn over the record. When he's up and can't see her, she scoops the rest of the mousse out into her napkin, so it looks like she finished it. Something here that I think is really interesting is that I don't think Rosemary is someone who is want to complain, and like, the few times she does, you know, this moment being like, I'm sorry I don't like this, or I don't like the smell of the tannis root, guy immediately is just annoyed being like these things are unkind blah 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 and it's like yeah sure but she's not saying it right to minnie's face and it's like god forbid rosemary decides that she doesn't want to eat something she doesn't like or doesn't like the smell of something and guy just has the you know audacity to judge her when 
all he does is be a dick. <laughs> yeah, especially because a uh, guy complains and dislikes, and he has no issue bringing up his distaste for anything. But it's interesting how simply Rosemary, who's the one who almost says really nothing negative, when she seems to like fall out of that line of not being polite and just accepting something, he takes it very personally. Yeah, and she's making a very small complaint here you know like she wants tonight to be special and she feels like oh it was almost ruined by Minnie showing up and now this moose is all chalky and she doesn't like it and he's so pushy about it and it's like bro it's not that big a deal women are just supposed to be quiet and accept everything i'm like so mad at how well i can see christian bale in that whole section <laughs> like honestly hmm. christian bale and like uh, michelle williams no i was okay i was looking up other actors and i was thinking of who would be good in like early 2000s like 2004 2005 rosemary's baby and i think it would be christian bale and jennifer love hewitt that's who I'm seeing, not Michelle Williams. I do like Michelle Williams, though. Because she kind of just looks a bit like the OG Rosemary, so I'm like, that's the first person I was thinking, I guess. Well, because earlier today, I was, like, looking up 90s Scream Queens, so I was thinking of what, like, actress from 90s horror should it be? And the ones that I came up with that I think would be the best would be Jennifer Love Hewitt or Sarah Michelle Gellar. Still leaning towards Jennifer Love Hewitt, though. First wave of dizziness caught Rosemary at the kitchen sink as she scraped the uneaten mousse from her napkin into the drain. When it was over, she said, Oh boy, and added up two Gibsons, two glasses of wine, or had it been three, and one creme de menthe. No wonder. Rosemary tells Guy she's dizzy, and he comments on all that booze and picks her up and brings her to bed. Rosemary says, We have to make a baby. Well, tomorrow. There's plenty of time. Missing the mass. Sleep. Get a good night's sleep. Go on. And then, Rosemary starts slipping in and out of consciousness, imagining she's on JFK's yacht. Guy starts taking off her clothes, saying it's to make her comfortable, and he tells her to sleep again. He thinks she's asleep, but Rosemary remains aware of some things, not entirely sure what is real and what is a dream. Guy takes off her wedding ring, confusing Rosemary, but she's too tired to ask why. It was the first time the Sistine Chapel had been opened to the public and she was inspecting the ceiling on a new elevator that carried the visitor through the chapel horizontally, making it possible to see the frescoes exactly as Michelangelo, painting them, had seen them. How glorious they were! She saw God extending his finger to Adam, giving him the divine spark of life, and the underside of a shelf partly covered with gingham contact paper as she was carried backward through the linen closet. Easy, Guy said, and another man said, You got her too high! Next, she's in a big ballroom, imagining this below deck on JFK's yacht. In the ballroom, the burning church, and the man with the black beard glaring at her. In the center was a bed. She went to it and lay down, and was suddenly surrounded by naked men and women, ten or a dozen, with Guy among them. They were elderly, the women grotesque and slack-breasted. Minnie, Laura Louise, Roman, and a sun-browned man with a white mustache are all there all involved in some sort of ceremony, chanting flat, unmusical, foreign-tongued syllables. She's awake, she sees, Guy whispered to Minnie, who's large-eyed, tense. She don't see, Minnie said. 
As long as she ate the mouse, she can't see nor hear. She's like dead. Now sing. Jackie Kennedy comes in to tell Rosemary she's sorry she isn't feeling well. Rosemary tells her she was bit by a mouse, but she shouldn't worry. Jackie tells her she should have her legs tied down in case she convulses, and Rosemary agrees, noting the mouse could have been rabid. Rosemary watches as her arms and legs are tied to the four bedposts. Believing she is dreaming, Rosemary imagines that Guy comes in and begins to have sex with her, but it doesn't feel like him. Slowly she becomes more aware of what is actually happening. She opened her eyes and looked into yellow furnace eyes, smelled sulfur and tannis root, felt a wet breath on her mouth, heard lust grunts and the breathing of onlookers. This is no dream, she thought. This is real. This is happening. Protest woke in her eyes and throat, but something covered her face, smothering her in a sweet stench. Afterwards, the Pope comes in to speak to Rosemary, telling her how he's heard that she was bitten by a mouse. She tells him that's why she didn't go to see him in person and asks if she's forgiven. Absolutely, he said. He held out his hand for her to kiss the ring. Its stone was a silver filigree ball, less than an inch in diameter. Inside it, very tiny, Anna Maria Alberghetti sat waiting. Rosemary kissed it, and the Pope hurried out to catch his plane. Chapter 9 The next morning, Guy tries to wake Rosemary to make him breakfast. He even yanks her hair. It's after 9, and he has to be at his vocal coach's place at 10. She tells him to eat out. The hell I will! He slapped her behind through the blanket. Everything came back. The dreams, the drinks, Minnie's chocolate mousse, the Pope, that awful moment of not dreaming. She turned back over and raised herself in her arms, looking at Guy. He was lighting a cigarette, sleep rumpled, needing a shave. He had pajamas on. She was nude. She's confused, uncomfortable. Rosemary tries to make sense of her dreams, and the moment she felt as if it was real and she was being assaulted by someone or something with yellow eyes. The dreams I had, she said, rubbing her forehead and closing her eyes. She opened her eyes and saw scratches on her left breast, two parallel hairlines of red running down into the nipple. Her thighs stung. She pushed the blanket from them and saw more scratches, seven or eight going this way and that. Don't yell, Guy said. I already filed them down. He showed short, smooth fingernails. Rosemary looked at him uncomprehendingly. I don't want to miss baby night, he said. You mean you... And a couple of my nails were ragged. While I was out? He nodded and grinned. It was kind of fun, he said. The necrophile sort of way. I dreamed someone was raping me, she said. I don't know who. Someone unhuman. Thanks a lot, Guy said. Okay, even though Rosemary does mention feeling as though she's been, like, raped by a creature, like, you do have to remember that rape was only ever seen as a crime, only done by, like, strangers in the night and not by a spouse, because the law didn't see marital rape as a real thing, because husbands were within their right to have sex with their wives, whether she wanted to or not. And marital rape was not yet recognized till 1993 as a crime in all 50 U.S. states. And something that really strikes me about this scene, her waking up, realizing she's naked... It's very much reminiscent of every single story you hear about date rape when someone's been roofied. This feeling of waking up, not knowing what happened, maybe not knowing where you are, realizing you're unclothed or semi-clothed, 
and just knowing that something terrible is, has happened. You know, the difference here is that she starts to remember, but so much of the memories she's having, she can't say that these were actual memories because they seem unreal. It's so scary. And that, like, paired with the way Guy is talking about it and being so flippant, it's horrific. Like, there's not much else I can say. It's just, it's just really, really horrific. I think it's typical of how the rest of the book goes of Rosemary constantly feeling like something is wrong and Guy just shrugging it off. And that is very typical of the world at large and uh, rape culture. Rosemary tells him about this ceremony she imagined, how many in Roman and others were there. She tells him she's uncomfortable with him doing it while she was unconscious, but he just tells her again he didn't want to miss baby night. We could have done it this morning or tonight. Last night wasn't the only split second in the whole month. Even if it had been, thought you would have wanted me to, he said and ran a finger up her back. She squirmed away from it. It's supposed to be shared. Not one awake and one asleep, she said. Then, oh, I guess I'm being silly. Guy tries to reason it away by saying he was drunk too, and Rosemary begins to feel unsure of herself, overcome with a range of emotions. Trying to process them, she has a shower. A long one, first hot and then cold. She stood capless and immobile under the downpour, waiting for her head to clear and her thoughts to find an order and conclusion. Had last night really been, as Guy had put it, Baby night? Was she now, at this moment, actually pregnant? Oddly enough, she didn't care. She was unhappy, whether or not it was silly to be so. Guy had taken her without her knowledge, had made love to her as a mindless body, kind of fun in a necrophile sort of way, rather than as the complete mind-and-body person she was, and had done so, moreover, with a savage gusto that had produced scratches, aching soreness, a nightmare so real and intense that she could almost see on her stomach the designs Roman had drawn with his red-dipped wand. She scrubbed soap on herself vigorously, resentfully. True, he had done it for the best motive in the world, to make a baby. And true, too, he had drunk as much as she had. But she wished that no motive and no number of drinks could have enabled him to take her that way, taking only her body without her soul or self or sheeness, whatever it was he presumably loved. Now, looking back over the past weeks and months, she felt a disturbing presence of overlooked signals just beyond memory, signals of a shortcoming in his love for her, of a disparity between what he said and what he felt. He was an actor. Could anyone know when an actor was true or not acting? One of the things that I really like about this ending paragraph here is the paranoia over Guy being an actor. It comes up more throughout the novel, and I feel like Rosemary kind of uses it as this blanket explanation for Guy kind of just like being a shitty dude. And it's interesting how the world at large loves to give actors a pass for awful behavior because of their talent. And, you know, that's even set apart from, like, quote-unquote, method actors, which we talked a bit about last episode. But for Rosemary, it's his talent is the reason that she's struggling to trust him. Because, like, I don't think him being an actor is tied to him being awful. And it's less about that he's good and a talented liar and more because of ego and entitlement. And these behaviors probably precede him becoming an actor. 
I do have to wonder what Guy was like before she married him. Is this like the exact same excuse that she's been like giving him even before they were officially a union? Or is it that the excuse Guy gave beforehand and she starts to like take it as, oh, it's just him being an actor? It feels to me that this is something that Rosemary hasn't really worried about until we get to the book. And I think it makes sense because they're at a point where they're making a big transition, which is moving into a bigger apartment because in Rosemary's mind, it's preparation for them starting a family. We're going to keep coming back to this, that his job is what is standing in the way of them starting a family. And of course, his job is being an actor. And Rosemary is starting to feel more and more that being an actor is less of a profession for him and more of his sole identity. And that scares her because she's unable to tell when he's telling the truth or not. Over the next little while, Rosemary feels distance between her and Guy. So to think he's aware of it, how he's never looked at her, how they go through the motions and make natural sounding conversation. All the while, Guy studies his part and prepares to go into rehearsals on November 1st. Finally, Rosemary asks Guy if they should talk about the growing distance between them, confronting him about never looking at her. Aw, look, honey. I know I've been preoccupied with the part and the crutches and all. Is that it? Well, gee whiz, Ro, it's important, you know. But it doesn't mean I don't love you, just because I'm not riveting you with a passionate gaze all the time. Gotta think about practical matters, too. It was awkward and charming and sincere, like his playing of the cowboy in Bus Stop. Guy believes they've made up, but Rosemary's still quite upset with him. Although Hutch doesn't pry into the state of Rosemary's worry, he offers her his cabin so she can spend a few days away from Guy by herself. Rosemary says she realized that she's never been alone in her entire life, not for more than a few hours at a time, and that... The idea of three or four days is heaven. Hutch responds, Chance to sit quietly and find out who you are, where you've been and where you're going. Rosemary tells Hutch about Guy's play. Hutch brings up Terry's death and Rosemary lies, saying she's sure she told him about that. Rosemary tells Hutch a bit about Terry and the cast of it. She left on the morning of Saturday, 16 October, and stayed five days at the cabin. The first two days, she never once thought about Guy, a fitting revenge for the cheerfulness with which he had agreed to her going. On the third day, she thought about him. He was vain, self-centered, shallow, and deceitful. She would give him a year to shape up and become a good husband. If he didn't make it, she would pull out, and with no religious qualms, whatever— and meanwhile, she would go back to work and get again that sense of independence and self-sufficiency she had been so eager to get rid of. She would be strong and proud and ready to go if he failed to meet her standards. On the fourth day, she awoke missing him and cried. Sure, he was vain and self-centered. He was an actor, wasn't he? Again, using the, oh, he's an actor as a blanket excuse, but now she's trying to use that to be like well it's okay he's an actor he's vain he's self-centered like what was i expecting because you just want to be like rosemary at some point you have to realize that him being an actor is totally fucking irrelevant to the way he's treating you and she has this time of respite to be away from him and 
at the end of it, she misses him and she comes home. I think it's just like another one of the things that like makes it, you know, a good book is that a lot of like the the relationships, the way she approaches the relationship, especially as a woman in the 60s, is realistic. Not just her being a woman, but also just her being the youngest child, never having been alone and moving all the way to a whole different city. So she doesn't really have a chance to really go anywhere or most of her friends are all connected back to Guy and they don't they almost have zero space with their friendship like they only know the same people. And I think it's clear, you know, like the only friend she has that she seems to actually like talk about her issues with Guy with is is Hutch. And obviously Hutch cares about her and he's the one who who offers her his cabin or cottage or whatever. But I still think he's a man. You think or you know. What I'm saying is that like he I still just, like, I think he's a man in the 60s. And as much as, like, we want to say he's gay and we love him, realistically at that time, Ira probably wasn't writing him as the perfect gay father figure. And even though he's extremely likable, and I think he's a wonderful father figure for Rosemary, I don't know that he's there telling her that she shouldn't be with Guy. I don't think he's there noticing Guy being shitty and... And, I mean, even if if he does, it's, people did kind of accept certain behaviors at that time. Socially, it's like, well, a man is allowed to do whatever he feels like with his women, and it's not our business. It's their business. It's their problems. Yeah, it's, like, clear that she has women friends, but... None of them seem to be all that close. She doesn't seem to, like, talk to any of her old roommates. There's a scene later where she's actually surrounded by women trying to help her. And it's, like, the nicest scene in the whole book. Because it's, like, people trying to help her. And it just, like, the isolation and obviously difficulty reaching out to people to ask for help, especially because, you know, she's estranged from her family, which makes it even harder. It does kind of make me think about how her and um, Teresa, they both are, they don't have, like, their family. And they're both the same, like the same, almost similar stories. But of course, with Teresa, she was a drug addict that was taken in by the Castavets while Rosemary is married with a husband and still... They're both, like, women who need help and are just um, isolated. Yeah. Terry had even less lifelines than Rosemary does. What makes it so scary is that there's all of these bits and pieces that are so grounded in reality. You know, I mean, that's what makes the best horror for me, I think. And being able to have these themes that are very realistic while also having something else going on that is a metaphor for a real life thing. Like, I really think you need to have that balance. That's why I love The Exorcist TV show. You know, they talk about real human abuse and issues within the Catholic Church that exist in the real world, while also using demonic possession as a metaphor for abuse 
and especially for sexual assault and rape. Specifically in the TV series, I think they did that very well and really brought it down to earth in a way that maybe the book and film didn't do quite as much. I miss The Exorcist. Yeah, R.I.P. And I just think Marcus Keane is such a good, important character, and I think about him every day of my life, and I miss him a lot. And The Exorcist is available on Netflix in Canada for those who want to watch it. It was a Fox show. Disney acquired Fox uh, after The Exorcist ended, and it doesn't look like The Exorcist is on Disney+. Plus. So I'm not really sure where else you could watch it. But for Canadians, it's on Netflix. And people with VPNs. Yeah, people with VPNs. Rosemary drives into the town nearby Hutch's cabin to call Guy, yet is unable to reach him all day. At nine, when she calls again, the service has a message from Guy telling her to call tomorrow before 8 a.m. or after 6 p.m. Rosemary calls Guy the next evening, and they make up. Guy tells her play rehearsals are delayed until January, and Guy got a job on a sitcom pilot. According to him, he's practically the lead. The next day, she goes back home. Her and Guy chat about the pilot he booked and who's involved while she unpacks. And then Guy mentions that Rosemary's period was due on Tuesday. She writes it off. It's only been two days. But Guy says that she's never been late before. They bet each other a quarter on whether it'll come or not. You're gonna lose, Ro. Shut up, you're getting me all jumpy. It's only two days. It'll probably come tonight. Chapter 10 Rosemary's period doesn't come. So on October 28th, Rosemary goes to an obstetrician named Dr. Hill, who sends her to get some blood work done. The next afternoon, he calls her and confirms Rosemary is pregnant. Dr. Hill tells her she needs to get some more blood taken because the nurse didn't take enough. This worries Rosemary, but Dr. Hill assures her that she's definitely pregnant. The nurse just forgot to take enough blood for other tests he regularly orders. Rosemary books in another appointment to get her blood taken and for a checkup. Rosemary gives Guy his quarter, and he's so excited by the news, he has to go tell Minnie and Roman immediately. Watching him go, she saw that Minnie and Roman had become deeply important to him. It wasn't surprising. His mother was a busy, self-involved chatterer, and none of his fathers had been truly fatherly. The cast of Ets were filling a need in him, a need of which he himself was probably unaware. She was grateful to them, and would think more kindly of them in the future. Guy returns with Minnie and Roman and a bottle of wine to toast the good news. Minnie asks if Rosemary has a good doctor, and she tells her about Dr. Hill. One of the top obstetricians in New York, Minnie said, is a dear friend of ours, Abe Saperstein, a Jewish man. He delivers all of the society babies, and he would deliver yours too if we asked him. He'd do it cheap, so you'd be saving Guy some of his hard-earned money. Abe Saperstein, Roman asked from across the room. It's one of the finest obstetricians in the country, Rosemary. You've heard of him, haven't you? I think so, Rosemary said, recalling the name from an article in a newspaper or magazine. I have, Guy said. Wasn't he on open end a couple of years ago? That's right, Roman said. It's one of the finest obstetricians in the country. Rosemary thinks about how young Dr. Hill is and how the technician had made a mistake and Dr. Hill needed more blood. Minnie says she should have the best, and that's what she'll get with Dr. Saperstein, and Rosemary agrees. Minnie immediately goes to the telephone to call Dr. Saperstein. She books Rosemary an appointment for 11 the next morning and makes sure Dr. Saperstein won't charge any of his fancy society prices. The four of them toast the baby, and Minnie remarks that she can't wait to tell the news to Laura Louise, but Rosemary asks her not to tell anyone else yet because it's so early. 
That night, Rosemary is too excited to sleep, thinking about her little Andrew, or Susan. Andrew, she was definite about. Susan was open to discussion with Guy. Rosemary worries about all the dangers that have never been dangerous before, but were dangerous now. She had to give up smoking. She had to ask about cocktails. If only prayer were still possible. How nice it would be to hold a crucifix again and have God's ear. Ask him for safe passage through the eight more months ahead. No German measles, please. No great new drugs with thalidomide side effects. Suddenly she remembered the good luck charm, the ball of tannis fruit, and foolish or not wanted it, no needed it, around her neck. She slipped out of bed, tiptoed to the vanity, and got it from the Louis Sherry box, freed it from its aluminum foil wrapping. The smell of the tannis fruit had changed. It was still strong, but no longer repellent. She put the chain over her head. This moment when she takes the necklace with the tannis root in it and puts it back on, like I was mentioning before, how faith is still important to her. And it's her feeling compelled to, without even knowing the significance of the tannis root and this charm to the cast of Ets, why they've given it to her. She is putting her own faith on it, and she's using it in place of a crucifix. And whether she's praying to God or something else, it doesn't really matter. It's that she is letting it comfort her in a way that is obviously indicative of Catholicism or religion. That's all I got. You got anything for that last little bit? Actually, I had, like, no notes for this. I just wrote down, uh, finding out she's pregnant does impact her in a positive way. That's it. I had nothing else. Great. <laughs> she's pregnant? Yeah. That's the end of part one and the end of our second episode. Thank you for coming on this journey with us. You got a, like, peppy sign-off or something? Well, I mean, this has been Rhea. And Winnie. This has been All of Them Witches. Stay nasty. <laughs> <laughs>